before we dive into this further into this chapter, I, I want to just do a little review because we're, we're at a transition point here in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a significant point because it's the end of a major section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the the way we break down the Sermon on the Mount, roughly three parts to it. There's that introductory part, the Beatitudes, um, the call to be salt and light. That's in the early part of chapter five. Then there's a transition that comes when Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, 17. And that's the major section of the Sermon on the Mount. It goes from Matthew 5, 17 to Matthew 7, verse 12. And then it's followed by what we'll get into next week, which is a series of warnings at the end of Matthew chapter 7. But where we are this morning is right at the end of this major section of the Sermon on the Mount. I'll just show you why, as we're going through this this morning, why this second part is so important and how its structure fits into what we're looking at. But look first back at Matthew 5.17. This is just what inaugurated this section. It started with Jesus saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's given the Beatitudes, he's given the charge to be salt and light, and then he says this, to make the point that he has come to fulfill the word of God by law and the prophets, that, that's shorthand for the Old Testament, for what we know as the Old Testament, what the Jewish audience understood were the, the books of the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. And so he is saying, I have not come to do away with them, but rather I have come to fulfill them. And he's making the point by his fulfillment that the Old Testament has anticipated him, that the, the Old Testament has anticipated the coming of this kingdom. We, we've called this series the King's Manifesto because it, it is Jesus Christ, the King, exhorting citizens of his kingdom to what we should look like to what this kingdom should look like, to what we should act like and speak like as part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But he's also there in Matthew 5, 17, and we talked about this at the time, to his Jewish audience, he's making it very clear to them that, that my coming is not some, some new twist in God's plan. It's not something unexpected, but rather I have come because all of the Old Testament has been pointing forward to me and to the coming of this kingdom, to the establishment of this kingdom. And so he is saying to his Jewish, Jewish audience, this is what the law and the prophets have anticipated. This is what they have looked forward to. If you'll recall, the Jewish religious leaders were at this time, their teaching largely distorted God's word and they had taken the law and turned it into sort of this man-made system of external kind of rules, sort of checklist rules that, that you could go by to decide whether or not you were behaving righteously or not. Jesus comes to show people, no, the true righteousness of God is rooted in the heart. It's in our desires and in our motives because it comes from a, a transformed heart. So if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, he says, at, at the beginning in the Beatitudes, you will be meek and merciful and pure in heart, things that don't typically characterize most of us. Most of us are, are without Christ, without the gospel. We lack meekness and mercy and purity and heart and mourning for our sin. We need a change. We need transformation. And so Jesus, from the very start of this sermon, is pointing to the gospel. 
He's making it very clear that there must be something that transforms you. And so this fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has promised is in him, and it is looking forward to the work of the gospel that Jesus will accomplish. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where the grace of God is poured out on us and changes us, takes our selfish ways, and now enables us to read the Sermon on the Mount and to see what Jesus has established as this is, this is what my kingdom should look like and see it as, as actually in the realm of possibility because of the work of God in us, because of the grace of God in us, we can live as, as his citizens. That's where he starts in 517. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So this section, the other end, the other bookend is Matthew 712. And if you look at that for a moment, Matthew 712 says, so... Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for, and here he brings it back, this is the law and the prophets. I wanted both verses up there on the screen so you'd see both together because he's, he's bookended this section by emphasizing the law and the prophets. He said at the beginning, I have come because the law and the prophets, the Old Testament matters. It has anticipated my coming and I have come to fulfill it the, the whole section then of the Sermon on the Mount from there to where we are today is to describe for us what that looks like, what it is to live out the righteousness of God and the things that he has called us to, what it means to, to live as a person who has who been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live within that righteousness of God. Again, the, the religious teaching of the day was kind of this man-centered sort of religious Checklist, you know, do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. If you follow this, then, then you're a, a good person. Jesus comes to blow that idea up and essentially says, if you think you're good, just because you do these things and you don't do these things or you do more of these than you, you do of these, then you need to know this. Your Father in heaven knows your heart. He understands your desires and your motives, and he knows why you're doing the things you're doing. If it's simply performance theater in order to try to impress other people, in order to try to just check boxes and look good religiously, or if you are doing it as an act of worship to the living God, to your Father in heaven. I, I said this on week one of this series, and, and I hope it's become even more apparent to you as you go through this. The Sermon on the Mount, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, can seem daunting. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, and that's why if you go historically back through interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount, there's all this wrestling with what do we do with the sermon? How do we apply it? Where does it fit? Because it seems to set such a high ethical standard that it's difficult sometimes for us to read this and not be discouraged, apart from understanding God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Spirit of God. Apart from that, reading the Sermon on the Mount should leave a person looking at this and saying, if, if, if this is what it means to be right with God, I can't do this. This is impossible. We as believers are reading the Sermon on the Mount and at times feeling like this is just so hard to comprehend all that Jesus is saying here. Just, just think about some of the things. Since he said that in 517 and launched into this section, just think about some of the things that he's covered. He has condemned Anger and lust. 
who of us hasn't had one or both of the other at some point or another? Anger and lust. And he has condemned those things as, as being worthy of eternity in hell. He's gone on and he's set this high bar for truth-telling. He spoke about the permanence of marriage, and he, he provides this, this conviction to so many in his audience that we saw, in fact, his, his own disciples responding to some of this about marriage and saying, how, how can this be? It's better not to be married based on the bar you're setting. He commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. In chapter 6, he walks through religious rituals that people have been doing just as a a sort of performance thing again. And he condemns this sort of ritualistic behavior that's not real worship. From there, he warned about judgmentalism, who among us hasn't struggled at times with a critical spirit toward other people. And then he warned about the foolishness of not making wise and necessary judgments. He's saying you have to have discernment. Discernment to be patient and kind with your brother, with the weaker brother, but still having the backbone to say enough to the fool who just wants to argue. And then as if all of that is not enough, as we read all of that and we are convicted at all different points throughout that, then he says in chapter 7, verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, that is the standard for how you are to serve others. That is how you are to minister to other people. And so you've got Jesus saying, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, and I'm now calling you to follow after me. That's the, the nature of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. It is kingdom exhortations. It is calling us to, to, to live differently. Even as people who are citizens here on earth, parts of earthly kingdoms, we are to live as those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and to be different. Matthew 7, 12, we know this. It's been called the golden rule. That goes all the way back to a, a writer back in the third century. He was one of the first ones to identify it as the so-called golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There are three things I just want to point out about Matthew 7, 12, and then we'll go back through verses 7 through 11. But three things about Matthew 7, 12. First, it's a positive exhortation. This is what you are to do. Many religions, many world religions have the, the mirror image of this in negative fashion. Don't do things to people that you don't want them to do to you, which is sort of obvious. That, that's kind of the, to, to go back to Jesus's mentality in Matthew chapter five, that's sort of the, you've heard this sort of bottom line mentality of, well, yeah, of course, don't, don't take someone else's stuff because I don't want somebody to come and take my stuff. Um, don't lie to other people unless I somehow enjoy being lied to by others. Don't hurt someone unless I expect to be hurt back. And, and so I don't do these things because I, it's being a good citizen, plus I, I don't want people to feel the freedom to do them to me. 20 years before Christ, 20 BC, Rabbi Hillel was asked by a Gentile, summarize your Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Summarize that for me briefly. Kind of give me the elevator speech, if you will, on, on what the Torah says. And the rabbi said, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. Again, it's sort of a common sense bottom line. He's, he's right to a point. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, they say, you shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery. So there's a lot of you shall nots 
And, and, but the, the, the sum of God's ethic doesn't stop with don't do these things to others. Because the sum of God's ethic reminds us that I am called to love God and to love my neighbor as myself. I'm called to a, not just a preventative sort of don't do the negative, but I'm called now to a different ethic, which is to love you as I already love myself. That's the positive exhortation. So what Jesus does in Matthew 7, 12, again, is, is kind of like Matthew chapter 5, where he says, listen, I, I know what the rabbis teach you. I know what you've heard, that just, just don't hurt other people, don't lie to them, don't steal. I'm here to tell you, you're called to something different. You are called to take what it is you wish people would do for you, and you are now to do that for others. So don't just avoid the bad things and check the box. When trying to decide how to treat your neighbor, the, the, the thought shouldn't just be, what do I avoid here? What would my neighbor not like? But it would be, what would, what would I really like? How would I like my neighbor to act toward me? And can I do the same back? Second part of verse 12, that I just want you to see, it's a comprehensive exhortation. ESV in verse 12 of, of Matthew chapter 7 says, So whatever you wish, whatever is a way of trying to capture the first word that is in the Greek here, which is panta, all or everything. The NAS accurately translates it as in everything, therefore treat people. It's a pretty high bar, isn't it? He didn't just say, hey, it'd be really good. If, if when you had the opportunity, you treated people as you want to treat yourself, he says, in everything, in all things, as you wish to be treated, treat others. This is the guiding ethic for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is, the reason I did the review is just to remind us of all that we've seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount, because this is where the Sermon on the Mount should should be hitting us, and it, it should be calling us to a, a different standard. Do I think about people and do for people the same as I want them to think about and do for me? What a, what a rebuke to our selfishness, to our own sort of inner kind of, you know, just doing for myself and what matters to me and, and, and thinking very little about others. This is a strong exhortation to a different kind of life. Think about it. what What have you done for yourself in the last 24 hours? Even those of you who are weary and haggard and say, I've, I've done everything for people around me and I've done nothing for myself. All right, let's pause and consider. Did you, did you shower? Check your appearance, your clothes, fix your hair, whatever it might be, because you were concerned about your appearance, not your children's appearance or your spouse's, but about yours. Did you sleep at some point because you needed rest? Did you eat anything that you wanted to eat at all? Did you do anything during the last 24 hours that somehow was something you, you desired? Even if you were Busy, even if you're a parent of an infant and your world revolves around that child, did you find something in that period that, that gave you a moment of relaxation, a moment of pleasure? I, I think it's probably fair to suggest you did at, at some point in there. And, and beyond what we have or have not done, the interesting thing is that the standard Jesus sets here is wish or desire. 
He doesn't just say whatever you do, whatever you've done for yourself, but he actually says wish, whatever you wish that others would do for you. In other words, what would you really like? Even if you did spend the last 24 hours just giving of yourself and serving other people, what is it that your heart sort of wished that others would do for you? Because Jesus now says, there's how you need to think about this. Think of all those times when someone asked you to do something and you did it, but you did it grudgingly. They didn't know that because you, you put on a happy face, but inside you were thinking, yep, I got to do this. Of course I have to do this. My wife told me I have to do this, so I got to do this. I got to be nice to these people or I got to whatever it is, fill in, fill in the blank. And we grudgingly sort of do that. Jesus' standard is, what would you wish that others would do for you? You'd, you'd want them to serve joyfully. You'd want them to be kind, graciously. He says, now do that unto others. His, his standard's rooted in his own summation of the law in Matthew 22, when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is the high calling of living in Christ's kingdom. This is what we are, are called to, be different. Don't just avoid doing things that you don't like. Go the extra mile and love your neighbor and serve your neighbor in the same manner with which you would desire to be served by someone else. This is, this is Jesus confronting us. This is why we, we've called this a manifesto, because this is the king saying, this, this kingdom is different it doesn't look like earthly kingdoms. If we are to be salt and light, we will live differently. We will look different to the rest of the world. Now, I would say to you again, at this point, as, as we come to this end of this section, there's a piece of this that, that perhaps leaves you feeling like, I am just overwhelmed. I read this and I feel hopeless. And, and it just seems like I, this is such a struggle to try to do this. Were it not for the grace of God and the power of his spirit and, and the power of his gospel to transform us, apart from those things, this kind of kingdom living would elude us. That's why the, the golden rule for the world apart from Christ is not achievable. They will quote it, and they will act like it matters and it should be followed. But the golden rule is not something that people can follow apart from the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ. Because it's just not natural to who we are. And that leads us then back to this. We need help. And, and verses 7 through 11 stress that. And this is the third key aspect of verse 12. Because in the ESV, verse 12 begins with the word, so... In the NAS, it's therefore. It's a little conjunction that, that Jesus uses that, that, again, points back and says, in light of, therefore, because of what I've just said, now live differently. And so verse 12 is a dependent exhortation. Obeying verse 12 depends on that which precedes it, on that which he has taught us before that. Now, there's a broad sense in which 
Everything in this section from 5.17 on precedes it, and he's, he's pointing back to all that he said in the Sermon on the Mount. The Old Testament's fulfilled in Jesus, and he summarized it and called us now to this highest ethical rule that is the summation of, of the Old Testament. But in the nearest sense, verse 12 is pointing us back to verses 7 through 11. So let's read verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We know these verses, right? Ask, seek, and knock. You've heard them before. Sadly, in 21st century evangelical American culture, we have to pause at this point and clarify what Jesus was not saying because ask, seek, and knock have become sort of the mantra of the prosperity movement that says... Jesus wants you to have everything that you want. Jesus wants you to have good health, and he wants you to have a bigger house, and Jesus wants you to have a better income, and he wants you to have all these things. And if you don't have them, it's probably because you haven't either asked enough or asked in enough faith. And so ask, seek, and knock it, pulled out of the Sermon on the Mount and made to apply broadly. Now, for us, it should be very clear now by studying the Sermon on the Mount that that, that theme just doesn't fit with everything we've been reading in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and all that we've seen Jesus saying as he's speaking to these people on the hillside, the issue of material prosperity has not been something he's been saying, I'm here to give you all the stuff that you want. On the contrary, he has challenged them. And he has said, ask, seek, and knock must sit side by side with blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who grieve their sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And blessed are those who experience persecution and hunger in this world. What Jesus says when he says, ask, seek, and knock, must be able to be held right alongside of all that he is taught about serving God and serving material things. Remember that teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you can't, you can't worship both. You can't worship stuff and the, the, the accumulation of stuff and worship me. You either seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and be content with what he provides to you, or you will worship the world. And you will be forever suffering from insatiable cravings for stuff and wondering why you can't seem to get it. So the idea that Jesus is giving his listeners some secret to prosperity does not square at all with the tone and tenor of all that we've been reading in the Sermon on the Mount on, uh, at this point. That, that would just be a, directly contradicting all that he's given to us. In fact, to emphasize something I said earlier, the Sermon on the Mount is giving this high bar of expectations for the character and lifestyle of those who call Jesus Christ their Savior. We are to live as citizens of his kingdom. So we must live and think and speak differently from a world that is consumed with possessions, that is consumed with stuff. Our, our driving principle can't be accumulation. We must have a higher bar. And again, I, I would submit to you, when we face a higher bar of expectation, the temptation is to become discouraged 
to see all of my shortcomings and to be convinced that I will just fail again. I can't do this. I do the same sins. God must be so sick of my failures. They're the same ones. This just seems so out of reach. But here's what we know. Here's, here's where Jesus is pointing us in this passage. Through the life and death and resurrection of the Son, through Jesus, we by faith receive a right standing before God. We are given that by grace, that right standing. We are then given his spirit and empowered to live according to that right standard. And that is a great blessing. But there's something else. There's something else that we as citizens of his kingdom need as, as we look at this high bar of expectations. There's something else we need to be committed to. And that's prayer. That's, that's how this fits within the Sermon on the Mount. Beyond what we are given by God through the teaching of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, and the abundance of God's grace, you and I must be committed to prayer. We don't just assume that, well, God will provide everything I need, so I, I never need to ask. He just does what needs to be done and empowers me to do what I need to do. What he's saying here is pray. Pray persistently. The three verbs Jesus uses in verse 7, ask, seek, and knock, all present imperatives in the Greek. That is, they are commands, and they are calling for continuous action on our part. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. They are calling all of us who are part of the, his kingdom to make these as continuous practices. So, so keep this within the context of all that Jesus has been teaching and all that we've already talked about this morning. Because then we begin to see why prayer is so imperative. Take what, take what Jesus has been teaching now and, and apply it personally. Think about some of the things we've talked about and, and, and make it personal. I, think in these terms. I, I, I don't know how to stop being angry at my children or at my spouse. I don't know how to overcome this, this battle with lust. I want to be salt and light, but I'm so afraid to talk to people about Jesus. I get in situations and I just, I get nervous. My marriage is a mess and I'm, I'm fighting the urge to, to walk out. I don't, I don't need a new car or, or a new phone or whatever the latest new thing is, but, but all my friends... I got the oldest stuff amongst all my friends, and I really do want that. I know I shouldn't be so quick to judge people and make assumptions, but it's so hard to stop what I've been doing so often. Or I'm torn up with anxiety. I know I shouldn't be this way, but I just don't know how to stop, and on and on and on. If you think you can breeze through the Sermon on the Mount and go, got it. Got it, can do this, can follow all this, not a problem, and you are fooling yourself. Because the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to a radically different standard marked by humility and sacrifice and service and obedience to our King, qualities that don't come naturally. So even with the Holy Spirit at work in us, convicting and exhorting us, even with a community of believers around to, to spur us on, even with the clear teaching of God's word, we still need more help. And that's why Jesus says here, ask, seek, knock, you can't do this on your own. You need help. You must pray. 
This is not about badgering God for stuff that I want. It's about coming to grips with the fact that I am a frail, sinful person who is still susceptible to temptation, who still lives in a fallen world, and I am broken, and I am struggling with hurts and needs, and I need help constantly from God. I need my Father in heaven to help me and and to work in me and through me in order to change me. D.A. Carson put it this way, this asking is an asking for the virtues Jesus has expounded. Seeking is a seeking for God. The knocking is a knocking at heaven's throne room. The kingdom of heaven requires poverty of spirit, purity of heart, truth, compassion, a non-retaliatory spirit, a life of integrity, and we lack all of these things, then let us ask for them. If one thing the Sermon on the Mount does, it should challenge you and I about our prayer lives. It should call us to to a, a, a sense of dependence on our Lord. Because among most Christians, there is a desperate lack of prayer. And we can classify it under our busy lives and our crazy schedules and what goes on in our home and what goes on in work. Or we can confess that it's likely our lack of desire. But we must be convinced that Jesus is not, in, in verse 7, when he says, ask, seek, and knock, he's not offering prayer as some therapeutic exercise that's meant to improve our outlook. He's not offering prayer, suggesting it as something that after you've, after you've run out of all your options and you've done everything you can do, then you should ask God. He's saying, no, continue, go on and on and on, asking and seeking and knocking, because you cannot do this without God's help. And in fact, that's not all, because the the illustration that he gives here then reminds us that he wants us to know this. You are not alone. This is not, your heavenly father doesn't see this as badgering. Your heavenly father doesn't take your confession of this sin for the sixth time today as something that is annoying to him at this point. Your heavenly father loves you. He wants to hear from you. Jesus has already mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount more than a dozen times, he has said to his audience, your father in heaven, your father, your father. And he keeps using that over and over again because they've been, they've been caught in this teaching that has said, God, religious leaders who sort of monitor you and tell you whether or not you're right with him. And then, and then you, there's this big separation. And Jesus keeps using this language to say, your father in heaven, he loves you. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then you are a child of your heavenly father. And he wants to provide for you. He wants to hear your praying. He does not want to give you wrong things in response as, as we might be tempted to do at times. We need, we need to learn continuous dependence on him. Because he is the one true king, and he loves us. This is where we, we tend to get this distorted, this whole kingship thing. It's where things get twisted up, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And, and this sense that, as the devil said, yes, no, God made this. He created you, and so that, that yeah, sure, that makes him a king. But if you eat from this fruit, guess what? You'll be like him. You don't need to depend on him anymore. You'll have knowledge and wisdom that will be just like his. You'll know all the answers, and and, and therefore it'll it'll all be 
good for you and you won't have to ask. You won't have to be this dependent child. And God's response to that is simple but profound. I made you. I am your king. I am the Lord your God and you shall have no others before me. So you shall worship me. But I am a good God who loves you. You and I can't be co-rulers with God when it comes to the agenda for our lives and, and how things go. Don't, don't turn your back on him as if you can do this all yourself. As if, I, yeah, I've got just enough God and now it's on me. God gives life and he sustains it and he alone is God. And the beauty of it is we belong to a good and mighty king who wants to bless us, who wants to provide what we need. A God who is eager to hear his children crying out when they are in need. Let's be honest, moms and dads. We, we want to be there for our children, and, and we hear them, and we want to hear them, but at 3.30 in the morning, most of us aren't eager to hear them cry out with some need that needs satisfying at that moment. We're like, oh. And he describes this and says, listen, this, this, this isn't even like how you think about this. Even you, who know how to do good things for your child, God, God is even better at that because God is not evil like you are. Don't miss this in verse 11. If you then, who are evil, Jesus saying this just so matter-of-factly, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In this matter-of-fact way, Jesus standing on the hillside says, if you who are evil, that, that's not often something you use with an audience when you're trying to win people over. But he's stating what the word of God says over and over again. And that is by nature, we are sinners. We, we are selfish and self-centered and we all share this in common. Our nature is evil and we are prone to not want to do good for others, but rather to want it for ourselves. And our heavenly father has no evil at all. He is good and kind and loving, and gracious, and just. Your king is a good king, and he loves you, and he longs to hear from you. I, I've heard people that, and I'm sure you have too, have heard the response from unbelievers who say, well, this, this God you talk about who created all things and now requires you to worship him sounds kind of like a narcissist. The truth is God didn't have to create anything. For all of eternity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed perfect love and fellowship and unity, and all was good. It is out of his grace that he made us and that he set us in the middle of this creation, that he provided for our good. And even when man then spit back at God, despite all that God had done, what does he do? But he gives his only beloved son to die on the cross a brutal suffering death in order to bear his wrath so that we might be forgiven and rescued from sin and death into light and life. This is, this is who Jesus is speaking about when he says, your father in heaven, he loves you. And that's why he's commanding now, we who are in the kingdom, whether it is you feel weary and defeated or you have no idea how you're going to live like Jesus, or anxiety is sweeping over you, or you are battling the same sin for the 800th time, 
or you feel like you're having a great day and you've got the whole world figured out. That is why Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. Come to me in prayer. You still must depend on me, and I long to help you. This kingdom of heaven is like no other. We are to be different from the rest of the world, and we will suffer for following Jesus. And it won't always be easy. But this much is sure. Our king is good and gracious and kind. And he has commanded us, not suggested to us, not offered to us. He has commanded us to keep calling out and to ask, seek, and knock. And he will hear us. And he desires to provide what we need to live as his children. Let's pray. Let's take a moment just quietly. If, you're, if at any point you have been convicted in any of this this morning in a struggle and a battle with prayer and with prayerlessness, would you take just a moment in the quiet and just confess that to the Lord? Confess your, your lack of following Matthew 7.7. 7. Father in heaven, thank you that you know our hearts so well, that there is no, no point in making excuses, in trying to dodge the question, in trying to explain a way where we have struggled in prayer. You know, and Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we're reading these verses, ask, seek, and knock, probably not the first time. We've probably read them many, many times before, and we've been urged from your word to call out and to pray. And we've even felt the, the weight of prayerlessness before and vowed to turn a corner and be different, and here we are asking for help again. And yet here your word is saying, ask. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And so we do that. Humbly, Lord, asking for your help, asking for your help in areas where we are struggling so, so badly with anxiety or anger or lust or dishonesty or whatever it might be, that pride, whatever's whatever seems to keep pulling us down. Please help. Please, by your grace, remind us again that you are present with us, eager to walk with us, eager to remind us from your word that there are truths that speak to these things, that your spirit is ready and able to convict us and to call us back and to bring to mind the things that we know are true. Thank you that your help is given out of love and grace, not, not grudgingly at all. As your, as your children, we come before you much in need of your help and compassion. 
Father, I would just pray that if there's anyone here, anyone watching online this morning who is not fully trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Savior, their hope for all of eternity is not resting on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Pray that today would be the day when your spirit would open their eyes to see the truth. That we, we do not earn righteousness by virtue of our efforts, our checklists, our works. But that the right standing that comes before you is only as a gift of your grace. To those who will admit that they are sinners and desperately in need of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Thank you that in that is forgiveness of sins. Father, as a church, would you continue to work in us, grow us as a body of believers who pray and who exhort one another to pray, who are not afraid or ashamed to be exhorted by others to pray. Cause us to be an asking, seeking, knocking family that loves to cry out to our Heavenly Father who loves to hear. Thank you for your grace on us. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.